Good morning, dear saints, and blessed Epiphany Tide, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Today is Monday, January 15th, and you're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. This is the day that the Lord has made, and it is wonderful to be in God's Word with you as we finish up our study on the book of Ephesians. In this final chapter, Paul sums up his instructions to the Ephesians on spiritual warfare and household conduct. He charges children to honor their parents and fathers to guide their children in the Lord. Controversially, he also urges Christian slaves to obey earthly masters as they obey Christ. We'll talk about that. But Paul urges all readers to stand firm against the schemes of the devil by putting on the full armor of God. And then he wraps things up with a little housekeeping by sending greetings via Tychius and a final benediction of peace, love, and grace over the Ephesian believers. Dear friends, we are so grateful that you are here today listening to the program, whether it be over the air, online at kfuo.org, or through the KFUO app, or maybe you're using your favorite podcasting app or a smart speaker. No matter how you tune in, I'm just glad you're here. So settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. So when you get time, visit lhfmissions.org to learn more. Now, if you have any questions or comments about today's show, or maybe you just want to say hello, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. I regularly get emails from listeners, and I love hearing where you're from and, and how Thy Strong Word is a part of your devotional life. You can also find me on Facebook, so feel free to look me up, send me a friend request, send me a message, and uh, we'll, we'll connect. But this morning, I have a, a wonderful pastor just up the road from me. It's the Reverend Robert Moeller, Jr. He's the pastor of the Our Savior Lutheran Church in Pipestone, Minnesota, and Trinity Lutheran Church in Jasper, Minnesota, and St. John Lutheran Church in Trosky, Minnesota. Good morning, Pastor Moeller, and welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Good morning, Pastor Boo. So excited to have you on. I know we're, we're in the same circuit, and uh, we are pre-recording today, folks, so you can't call in, but uh, we were supposed to we were supposed to do this earlier, but, you know, uh, we figured, ah, well, I'll wait till after our winkle today, but then the winkle got snowed out, so we're just kind of having a snow day here in southwestern Minnesota. But it's good, though, because we're getting to gather around God's Word. And, uh, and well, you can't spend better time than that than being in God's Word. All right, so i tell you what we're going to do. We are going to dive into our text, but not before we open up in prayer. Brother, would you lead us in a prayer, please, as we start our study? Certainly. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. As we study that word today, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us. As pastors and and teachers, may we bring forth what you would have us to learn. Would you continue to help us to understand the the ways in which you've set up uh, the economy of the the household, uh, the ways in which you would have us relate to each other through our vocations? Bless this time and all those who hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, wasting no time, we're going to get right into our text. Now, last time, which was on Friday, when we got together, we studied Ephesians 5. And in Ephesians 5, oh, let's see here, uh, about verse 15, Paul writes, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Now, from that dramatic statement, we then talked about submitting to one another. He says in verse 20, We give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That was the context by which we then got into these household, uh, I guess, what's the word here? I guess principles, principles for households, beginning with wives and husbands, and continuing into our text today with children and parents and bond servants and masters. Uh, but even the wives and husbands part has been a little, I guess, sticky in our American context because so many people misunderstand that. So just taking a step back, brother, if you don't mind, just give us a quick summary of the end of Ephesians, you know, right where we started these household responsibilities, uh, the table of duties you mentioned off the air. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Yes, I guess as far as for when we get to the the sticking point there, uh, it kind of seems especially to be on one word where it gets into submission. What does submission mean? Uh, that's why it's kind of nice when we have the in verse twenty one submitting to one another out of love for out of reverence for Christ. Uh, that as we go as we go through this the the whole uh, whole section here of the household duties. Uh, would be, uh, it's important for us to think of them in, in terms of these are all in Christ and our relationships are in Christ and, and looking at it through that way. Uh, as far as for the wives submitting to the, the husbands, the, that's Paul takes that into uh, the, the husband as the head, as Christ is the head of the church. And therefore, it's the responsibility of the husband to look out for the welfare of his, of his wife. Um, and the same way when it when it talk when he then turns to the to the husbands is love your wives as as uh, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her and so uh, it's it's uh, done out of love it's done out of respect it's done out of a, a, a sake of order and so that reflected within the marriage might be at least a, a glimmer of that relationship between Christ and his bride the church. Uh, whom he gave himself up for, and who uh, he presented to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Uh, yeah, it is key, and and Paul makes it very clear, those scriptures in general make it very clear that, yeah, the, the life of the Christian is about living for neighbor, uh, in this case, submitting to one another. And yeah, what we talked about this yesterday, uh, sorry, Friday, but we broke it down and yeah, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, but that also has a prerequisite that the husbands are also loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Now, Christ sacrificed himself for the church. He died for the church. If husbands are living sacrificially for their wives, that's pretty easy to submit to, or at least easier, I should say. We all, of course, struggle with sin, and none of us do this perfectly, but yeah, you hit the nail on the head this, while it is instructions to husbands and wives, is all about learning about our relationship with Christ. 
And that continues today. Uh, Really, it just flows from last week because now we're getting into chapter 6, and he begins with another aspect of household life, not this time husbands and wives, but now children and their parents. Let me read the first four verses. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All right, so now we're back to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit-guided life, and it's necessary to have, well, to strive for anyway, good parent-child relationships. Brother, take us through this. How, how does this compare to, well, you know, the, the submission that we saw earlier with husbands and wives? There's still kind of a back and forth with children and parents. It's not just children listen to your parents. Parents have a duty too. Yeah, there, there's a... There definitely is a, a back and forth there. I think it kind of, but I kind of start here with the Paul beginning with children. That, but that would be quite unusual for Paul to address children within uh, the context of his culture and mm-hmm. and all the other household orders or or however you would want to to put that word. The the instructions that they wouldn't speak directly to the children in in general. That they would be speaking to. Uh, and but is going to the the authority of the parents, um, especially uh, because it's related to well, he relates it right away to the to the fourth commandment, uh, honor your father and mother, the, the and uh, with the promise that comes attached with that. Um, that I guess also I think that it's important to recognize that. As Paul is as Paul is doing this with the and with the other groups that he's recognizing those children as Christians as believers as well uh, that he can that he can direct them because he's talking about uh, obey your parents in the Lord uh, that that phrase that uh, very similar that would have would have been as far as for the relationship between between the husband and the wife too. You bring up an interesting point that I had not ever considered before, and that is the fact that he is addressing the children. Now, on the one hand, I suppose there are adult children that could learn from this, but the word here, the term here is for those little kids, the the, the, the ones who pretty much had no social standing at all in the Greco-Roman society. In fact, well, much like today, they were required by law to submit to the authority of their parents. So, they were compelled to. Now, Paul's instruction, though, isn't based on natural law or human law. It's based on this uh, principle of mutual submission, just like with husband and wife. It, it's, it's not, it isn't that the parents don't have godly authority, fourth commandment authority over their children. But at the same time, we, as, we, as we've often talked about, you know, authority is best done in a way that's mutually beneficial. So while Dads might have to, every now and then, kind of lay down the law. He's urging fathers to not just provoke, don't just provoke your children. So, yeah, I love that he's starting off with children, and I never considered that before. I have a feeling that you might bring up a similar point when he's addressing bond servants or slaves. Uh, yes, yes, I, uh, yes, that is also very similar there as well, too, that mm-hmm. he's addressing 
those bond servants and and they're they're first uh, they're first mm-hmm. as far as for uh, with fear and trembling and sincere heart but yeah, you would expect that in this case with children and parents that fathers would be mentioned first. But I have never considered that. I'm so glad you brought that up. But he does quote the fourth commandment, or as we number it, the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. He makes a parenthetical note that this is the first commandment with a promise. I guess talk a little bit about that. I mean, we think of the commandments being things we have to do. Or more charitably, things we get to do as, as, as uh, sons and daughters of God. But this idea of a commandment with a promise, I guess, why is he bringing that up here? What's that have to do with anything? Um, again, the, the whole relationship, uh, we're talking about believers who are dealing with, with one another. And so within that relationship in God's eyes, there, there would be on a similar level within the household order of course that that would be a little bit different but we as believers we should be treating each other as fellow believers rather than someone who is under you know under my thumb that more so looking they're under my care perhaps or or that there's something that i there's some some way in which i can be a blessing to them and they can be a blessing to me yeah and and, and we have the fathers now Let's talk about that just for a second because he doesn't say parents, okay? He doesn't say moms and dads. Like if we were writing this today, I think we'd be careful to either say parents or uh, moms and dads or dads and moms because we know that both have a God-given responsibility to raise up children. But he mentions fathers because, well, I guess they represent the, the head of the family. I mean, that's that's certainly a biblical position. The, the Bible is very patriarchal, and there's nothing wrong with that. But he's not leaving out mothers in this duty, right? No, that that we get that right away in the beginning because the the word parents, the translated parents, there is parents. It, it's used very seldom with within scripture, but but it does in, include both the the mother and the father. And then you also get the the fourth commandment that has honor your father and your mother. Then he shifts to to the father, and so that is something wor- worth discussing a little bit uh, about about the the position of having the father there. Um, yeah, go- gonaeus is that Greek word for parents, and according to my quick software look, it's used only twenty times in the whole Bible. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that that is fascinating. Yeah, because you're right. He mentions father and mother obviously in the commandment from Exodus, and he mentions parents. But then when it gets to, uh, I guess, applying the discipline, he mentions fathers specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, as I was doing studying here, it was kind of three, three possible, uh, three good reasons for, for doing it that way. Uh, could be, first of all, uh, you sort of mentioned that the husband is the head of the wife and ultimately the responsible, responsible for the order of the, the household. Uh, uh, also that the father is... Uh, He's addressing the father as the representative of God. And so just as in the marriage analogy, it's the male figure that represents Christ to a female, the churchly bride. So it's also here the, 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 the father who is the representative of God the father in the parent relationship. And 
Well, probably something that comes in true, too. I don't know how it is in your house, but fathers in general are more inclined to harshness with their children than mothers, or we, we can uh, come across that way anyway. So there might be a little bit of warning just for that sake, too. I have to admit, I think that's my experience, too. Sometimes I get a little heavy-handed, at least more than my, my wife. Sometimes I think she's a little soft. That might be a conversation that parents have had for ages. <laughs> yep. uh, but at the same time, you're right. I mean, Paul doesn't want fathers treating their children in such a way that is going to make them harbor resentment toward them. Um, and to treat, but, but let's talk about this, and, and you also highlighted this a little bit, to even treat children with kindness, to like accept that they're human beings and, and have feelings and emotions and, and motivations of their own, even if they're developing, that's not something that would have been even on the radar for Greco-Roman society. I mean, children were very, I don't want to overstate it, but just very kind of, you know, uh, uh, disposable underfoot. You know, it, a lot of children didn't live at all. I mean, it, it's not that parents didn't love their children, but there, there wasn't a lot of, I guess, personhood given to children during this time. Yeah, and that's why in, in some of the cultures that uh, that there there could be uh, in early early parts of their lives that the, if there was something wrong with the child or they thought something was wrong with the child that well they were literally disposable. So yeah, and you think of that today because you know people would look at that and I think hopefully almost everybody would rightly say. Uh, that's barbaric. That's awful. And <laughs> yeah. Christianity comes around and it changes that. It uplifts women. It uplifts children. It it equalizes. Some of the things that people seem to be so-called fighting for today, the church brought into the world. And yet there's we've taken a lot of steps back with, and I don't you know want to belabor it, but we've taken a lot of steps back with things like uh, abortion and, and other things. So it's just, uh, it's just an interesting thing to see how in this Roman society, Christianity is coming in and yeah, it's patriarchal. Yes. Fathers are heads of the households, but at the same time, Christianity is coming in and it is countercultural. It is, is promoting the right and godly way to be. It of course doesn't mean that everybody was able to do this perfectly. Uh, anything else about these first few verses before we move into the next section? I guess just kind of mentioning again, the, the don't, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. That Ultimately, that's the focus, and I, I think that's part of the reason, or the best reason, perhaps, for not provoking them to anger, too, because if you destroy a relationship with your child, uh, that it's going to be pretty hard to, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, uh, because they're going to equate fathers with harshness, and they're not going to understand the understand God the Father very well. Well, let's move on to the next section, which I think in recent times can be just as controversial, so to speak, as the uh, husbands and wives uh, rhetoric that we get from Paul. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. Paul continues, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, 
whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Now this also, if we read it very surface level, or we don't read it all the way, and we're being very critical, you know, people will take out of that, well, the Bible says slaves need to obey their masters, and they miss the entire point. But not the least of which, the way that, and we've talked about this on the show, but it's worth repeating, the way that bond service or even slavery worked in this time is dramatically different than what we think of slavery today. Yes, that, like, that, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yes, that, that's, that is correct. Um, I think there, I think as far as we're, you know, definitely the, we don't want to skip over the part that the, the, the slaves were, were owned, but uh, usually it was for a, a period of time, oftentimes for debt or some things like that. Um, uh, historically, okay. slavery also also did come from, from conquering other, uh, other peoples and uh, that they would become slaves. But uh, throughout one the— source, I was going to oh, say go one ahead. source explains to me that— yeah, prior to the first century A.D., as you said, the majority of slaves in this Mediterranean area were, were from prisoners of war. But by the first century, a system had developed where the primary source was through being born into the slave system. So a child born to a female slave was a slave, regardless of the status of the father. So even if the father was a centurion, the child would still be a slave. And a freeborn child could also be enslaved. So we see that sometimes those infants, you know, those infants you were talking about earlier who were left exposed to the elements to die so awful. Well, they were sometimes gathered by slave traders, raised up and sold as slaves. So we're not, and I'm not for sure. And you're not, I know diminishing the, this is not how God wants it to be. So I'm not saying all slavery was so different to say that it was okay. But until, you know, unlike recent history, Slavery in Rome wasn't based on race or ethnicity. Anyone could become a slave, and nearly any slave could become free. So the Roman government was basically, or the Roman world, I should say, was composed of you know two people. You were either slaves or you were free. But I guess getting to the heart of it, though, is you know we would expect, especially with the idea of liberation that's so important to us today, and we certainly want people to be free, why doesn't God just say, bond servants... Deny your masters, rise up against them. You know, it, it seems like he's talking to slaves who are Christians and masters who are Christians. How can you be a Christian and have a slave? I, I guess that's what's going to trouble people. Okay. Yeah. Again, it gets back to our relationship with God, with God himself, because of the, we are, in fact, slaves. We, we're either slaves to sin or, or we're slaves to Christ, is how it's put. And I, I think when, there's not too many of us that are going to complain about being a slave to Christ, most certainly. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and even today, I mean, back then we talked about the fact that uh, some slaves were like physicians <laughs> as bond servants yeah. living in the household. Or they were the equivalent of accountants. So they had what we maybe consider professional jobs. And then, of course, there was penal slavery used to punish crimes. And, you know, you could, that's not much different than today. You know, we have people who are in prison for various crimes. 
We have people who work a job, almost everybody, right? Who, mm-hmm. who has, you know, you are voluntarily enslaving yourself, if I can be a little dramatic about it, to an employer. Now, yeah, you're free to leave, but if you need that as income, how free are you? So, yeah. so in some ways we can look at this and we can say, while we're thankful that the world continues to reject the idea of owning or forcing other human beings to work, we still have a system whereby we sell our time to others in exchange for things in, in return. And, and so I think we can listen to this too, even though this is in the context of households, I think it's uh, the, the, the Luther uses this as uh, employers and employees, and, and I don't think that's a, a bad connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, the, kind of the, the household part, well, how this fits in is that the slaves were generally the part of part of the household then too, that as a slave, that, that the, uh, that the master was responsible for feeding them, for taking care of them, for providing them shelter and, and all of those things as well. And if he want, wants to have a productive slave of, of training them and, and uh, as, a Christian, as a Christian master, then that gets into also teaching them about the, the Lord, about, uh, about the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. You know, it still is very difficult for us to get, or at least for me, to get my mind around being a Christian and yet having someone indebted or in bond service to you. Uh, but, and again, not as a means of defense, but just as a means of explanation, if it's so ingrained in the culture, it is something that would take a lot of time to, to change. I mean, it's a big ship, the mm-hmm. Roman Empire. You can't turn it on a dime. So what I like to highlight in this section is as you have, yes, it still applies today to us in our, say, our employment situations, but also that we see God equating bond servants and masters. Now, that is where it becomes dramatic. He says, whatever good a person does, they're going to receive good from the Lord, regardless of who he is. During that time, they would have thought, well, surely God will bless a wealthy landowner, but he's not going to bless a slave. But in this case, he says, no, with God, there's no partiality. God's your master and theirs. I think that's dramatic and it's important. I think that would change the behavior of a master. Yes, and again, look at the, at the order in which Paul addresses them, the, the, the bond servants first. Um, that, that would be, be surprising as well. Absolutely. Well, that's, that is Christianity, right? It's countercultural. It's bringing God's will into a world that's set on living against his will. I think we can certainly appreciate that today. But I tell you what, folks, we are right here at our time for a break. So don't go anywhere. In just a few moments when we return, Pastor Muller and I will continue our discussion of Ephesians chapter 6 and wrap up the book. We'll see you on the other side. <laughs> These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. 
With me today is the Reverend Robert Moeller, Jr. He's the pastor of the Tri-Strands Parish, which includes Our Savior Lutheran Church in Pipestone, Minnesota, Trinity Lutheran in Jasper, and St. John Lutheran in Trotsky, Minnesota. You know what? Don't forget that you can contact me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Give me a like, send me a message. You can send your questions or comments and more. And if, uh, if you have a question that needs to go on the air, we'll bring it on the air. Uh, now, you can't call in today because we're pre-recording, but I'll absolutely respond to anything you send me. We're going to head into the next section, which is the whole armor of God. And uh, we've just got done talking about the importance of, of household, living in, according to God's will in our household. As we head towards the end of the letter Paul is leaving the Ephesians with this metaphor of the whole armor of God uh, to give them comfort and encouragement as, of course, uh, you know, they, uh, they, they, he leaves them from this letter. He'll also give some final greetings, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, I would like to start by reading verses 10. Let's just do 10 through... Let's do 10 through... 12. So we're not going to get quite up to the armor itself yet, just going to start at the beginning. So here we go. He writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let's just stop right there. So here we are. He says, be strong in the Lord and put on the whole armor of God. Now we're going to talk about what that is and frankly what it isn't. But starting here, he says so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Now this isn't the first time we heard about this. Back in chapter 4, verse 14, he wrote something similar. He says, you know, stand strong so that we may not be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Well, humans can do deceitful schemes, but he's talking here of the schemes of the devil. We're talking about spiritual warfare. And he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness. Just tackling these first few verses, brother, what is he talking about? I mean, is he saying that we are fighting against um, the rulers and authorities like governments? Or is he talking about something more? And I have a feeling it's something more. Okay. Yes, it's something more. But I think I'm going to go first with the what, what this is not, probably, because that helps to answer that question a little bit. Oh, sure. Uh, that within the, the armor of uh, the armor of God, as we go there, I think there's a, a misreading of that oftentimes, where, or especially since prayer is going to be included on the, the last part of, of following that, um, that people think of this as the, the Christian's mandate to take the battle to the devil, to attack the sinful world around us with the gospel, you know, to storm the, the devil's stronghold. But uh, if you look, when we start looking at uh, those uh, the armor of God uh, that's listed there that there's only one if you include and if you include prayer uh, two that are offensive weapons all the other ones are, are defensive weapons 
which kind of goes also with the, so that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. That doesn't say so that you might be able to take the devil down because uh, on our own, we cannot, certainly cannot take the devil down. Um, well, you know, before and, we, we talked about how, you know, Jesus talks to Peter, you know, about, you know, how the, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And, and it took me forever to realize gates don't attack. This is the no. church sort of storming the gates of hell, and they won't be able to resist us. But what you're saying here is that the focus is a little different. It's, it's, a, it's more, I guess, protective or defensive. Yeah, particularly with the, the schemes of the devil, that sure seems to, to emphasize to me that it's the devil who's got the, got the plan to try to work against us, uh, that, that we are here and we're, we're, uh, we are Christ, but, uh, and he has given us this armor uh, to uh, carry on his mission, to protect ourselves and, uh, as we are in, engaged, in, engaged in his mission. Uh, but and that then kind of leads into the the idea, <clears throat> the false idea that some have about uh, these forces that they'll kind of mix them in. Or there's hierarchies, or or that we need to take it. That it's our job as Christians to take on the culture to to make whatever changes are going against that specifically. Now we certainly need to speak against it, but most of the time, if you see from scripture and, and how the apostles dealt with it, that they weren't going out trying to force that. They were trying to tell the gospel. And it was only when uh, when the schemes of the devil were working against them that they that they were speaking against, against government or so forth, because you know, we are called upon to obey the obey the government as as long as it doesn't uh, as long as it doesn't conflict with God's word and, and God's will. Yeah, I mean, when he's talking about rulers and authorities, a little different context here. You know, you just said it, right? We're, we're to obey uh, worthy authorities as much as we can. Uh, but I've seen a lot of ink spilled over trying to kind of connect which, you know, spiritual uh, or, or uh, you know, demonic types of forces that we're against. And they'll classify rulers and classify authorities and powers. But, you know, I, I, it, does, it just doesn't make a lot of sense because I think the point Paul's making isn't to give us, you know, uh, a chapter for a, a book on demonology. He's trying to tell us, well, just what he says, stand against, take a stand, stand. We're going to hear that language. We're going to hear that language more as we read. I'm going to go ahead and add the rest of the text, if that's okay, starting um, with verse 13. Could I say one, one more thing with that? Another, another mistake that Christians can also make is to assume that the Christian church is left to fight that battle alone, too. That we, uh, that we, uh, that we uh, neither wait for Christ to win that battle nor fight, you know, nor fight for Him. You know, we're often struggling with how the church should interact with a culture that continues to depart more and more from the will of God. In fact, we're becoming a lot more, uh, returning, I should say, regressing a lot more back into the way that the the society was when Paul was writing these letters. So it makes it even more valuable to us. But, but yeah, we, how do we react with the world? Are we to go out and force people to convert and, and, and appeal to governments to make them all Christian and wave the Christian flag? A lot of people see it that way. I don't. And I don't think that that's especially what this text is teaching us. I'm going to look at now verse 13 through 20. 
Therefore, Paul writes, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Yeah, so reading that, keeping in mind what you've already told us, yeah, you, you can't really conclude that this is a call to war. It's, it's a call to stand firm. But as you mentioned, there are a couple of offensive weapons, so to speak, the sword, which is the word of God, even prayer. So there is a reality that while there might be times that we have to fight, even our fighting is done by the word of God, not by actual weapons. And in this case, even the defensive stuff, this isn't this isn't things that we do. These are things that we've been given. Uh, take us through this this amazing armor of God. Okay. Um, if it's all right with you, I'd like to back up to the Old Testament for just a little oh, bit. please. Because there we get a, a picture, one of the best, best known stories, perhaps, or most known. I don't know if it's best known necessarily, but it would be the story of, of, of David and Goliath and Saul's armor. And uh, where we get a description of of that armor within there, uh, where where we're told that Goliath had a helmet of bronze and he was armed with a coat of mail and uh, how much everything weighed and, and all those sorts of things, very many offensive weapons, uh, and then it makes a big thing about his armor and um, both because of his unusual size and because of his status as the champion that that it seems that that armor must have been, you know, extremely valuable and, and stunning. So, you know, you got to put on a good impression if you're going to be the champion of your people as you're going against somebody that you, you try to look the part as well. And then it also then talks about Saul. Saul wants to clothe David with his armor. But we, we know from that story that when David tries to put it on, he's just a, a young young lad and, and Saul is is big by the standards of the Israelites anyway, and it just doesn't fit for him. Um, we often say, okay, well, they, it didn't fit, so David went without the armor. But there could be a little bit more going on there because that armor was also, armor and the sword were also uh, considered as um, as the power in many of those nations as the power where you gained your victory from that. I mean, maybe think of Arthur and you know Excalibur or, or things mm-hmm. like that. that that if you have those things. And so um, in Saul and offering his armor, you know, at least some commentators would, would think that that he was going to clothe David in his own armor. That way he could still take some of the credit for the defeat. Where as David's focus is the battle is the Lord's. You know, the, the battle is belongs to the Lord, which kind of hopefully takes us back to <laughs> Ephesians with, with those parts of the armor. Huh, I'm just sitting here thinking about that. You know, you're right. I mean, you know, Saul would have been like, hey, I, I want to take some of this credit. Uh, he wants to focus on the Lord. In this case, we're getting 
the we're getting all the compliments of armor, but but God gets all the credit because the the protectiveness is from Him. And, and I was thinking about that sword. You know, a lot of folks, uh, especially in our country, in the United States, they carry a weapon of some sort for self defense. And I think of Jesus out in the desert being tempted by Satan, and he actually exercises some self-defense. And what does he do? He points to God's word. So here we are being metaphorically, spiritually given a weapon of self-defense, and that is the word. Of course, analogies all fall apart at some point, and I would say that not only is it a self-defense for us, but it is a, a gift to others because it can tear at uh, at the heart of people and then bring them around. So that's also a good thing, which is also why we pray for our enemies. But yeah, I think that's a, a very great connection to David and uh, and Saul and Goliath. Okay. Um, then I guess we'd kind of, I'd kind of go into a little bit of the, the a little bit of a look at the six pieces of armor that are, are discussed there. Um, and and then I want to, after we get done with that, I'd like to connect it with baptism as our as our armor as well. Go for it. Yeah, I think I think most of us, uh, the, the most familiarity we have with this is probably from Sunday school, you know, when you get to right. lay out the little shields and cut out the little helmets or color them or something. Uh, but yes, please elevate our understanding of it. Uh, go ahead, brother. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, the, first of all, the, the belt of truth. I'm just going to go in the, the order that they're that they're in there, uh, that the, I guess as far as for when, when we're talking about truth, and since we're talking about a spiritual battle, not a flesh and blood battle, that uh, truth, uh, without truth, we're at the mercies of Satan's lies. And what, you know, what is Satan's power, really? It's lies, isn't it? It's, it's his schemes, it's, it's his lies. And uh, when those lies start to work, then then it's his, we'll get into the next part, uh, righteousness. Uh, we have the breastplate of righteousness. And without righteousness, we can't defend ourselves against Satan's accusations. Because you know, the oh, without Christ's righteousness being credited to us or being clothed in Christ's righteousness, uh, Satan and what that wouldn't, wouldn't be lies when Satan accuses us. Oftentimes, uh, but it but because because we've been declared righteous, that Satan's accusations are no longer true. Uh, that, that there's no truth to them, so we can defend them, defend ourselves against those accusations. Yeah, um, no, and that makes sense. And kind of like I was saying earlier, you know, it, we have the truth of God's word, which is our defense in in a in a spiritual attack, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then we have the the gospel of peace uh, that, and they're they're kind of the next ones are kind of connected quite closely with each other, but the I th- I can't think of the 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 peace that you'd wish upon, uh, or that you would bless each other with, or or greet each other with uh, as Christians. But but that peace and unity keep us connected to the body of Christ, other Christian believers. Because I think that maybe be an over an overlooked um, piece of armor <laughs> for us Christians that we all always remember their prayers we don't always remember why it's important to meet with fellow christians regularly uh, to help b- build one another up and and to be able to uh, 
defeat when when a, a soldier in war gets separated from the from the rest of his platoon, uh, he's in much more danger than than if he is with them and, and working together with them. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense, you know. And, and and that whole idea of spiritual warfare for the Christian, I think it's something that a lot of Christians inadvertently, maybe not on purpose, but they dismiss. They think, well, you know, that's you know, that was the devil or or demons and, and it doesn't really happen today, but it does. It does. We are always under constant attack. And so thank God that he provides us these things. Mm-hmm. Um then we have the the shield of faith, uh, where we can quench the 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 fiery darts of 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 Satan, um, I guess that really comes into the you know faith trust in God's promises for us in Christ and so in Christ again as we as we focused with the uh, uh, the instructions to children to uh, to parents to slaves and masters and so forth that that a thing that connects all these even though it seems like a couple of different parts that we've been going in chapter six would be that in Christ. And I'm sure as you've gone through Ephesians that you've focused on that because it's kind of all the way through, it's kind of all the way through uh, Ephesians in every chapter, really. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I especially agree with that. And uh, then we have the, uh, then we have uh, salvation, uh, the helmet of salvation. And the salvation helps us to resist Satan's attacks that, again, that, that produce the doubts, that remembering that, that we, are, we are saved, that, that we are a Christian, and, uh, and, and uh, not to let Satan separate us from that or, or start to doubt that. And then kind of word and spirit certainly go together there as the, uh, the final piece of the armor of, uh, Talking to you know the offensive one, but swords also defensive, isn't it? That it blocks the thrusts of of the devil as well as as it could be could be offensive. Yeah, I mean you know the shield obviously is a primary defensive uh, uh, tool in battle, uh, but you're right, the sword too is very defensive. I mean not only does this weapon help us proclaim the gospel message, but it's a weapon in such a way that it kills just like it kills us, but it also makes alive. But mm-hmm. yeah, we combat attacks from the devil with it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Christ in, in the wilderness <laughs> against the, the devil. Uh, certainly what he used, he used God's word uh, as he was going there, the, the sword of God's word. Now, prayer shouldn't just be an afterthought for believers. This is, a, this is also a primary tool, right? And he brings that up here. That is, yep, that is correct. Um, let's see, we get, yeah, it's part part of the, the pattern that's going on here and prayer is a, is an important, uh, uh, important piece in spiritual warfare. Uh, Paul is speaking about, uh, as far as for praying at all times in the spirit with all supplication that would be that would be for all of us be for ourselves but also Paul's asking for for prayers for himself as as he is going through what what he has um and 
that's also been a theme throughout Ephesians as well, that, that Paul's begins has opening prayers in, in chapter one there uh, for the Ephesians, and, and he closes with a call to, to pray for him, kind of wrapping the, the whole letter uh, in prayer and, and reminding them of the importance of that. Um, also, the, that the, the rhythm of prayer uh, is instructive, that Paul prays for them to teach them how to pray for him and for others. And, and so as they're, they're taught to pray, then, then they also, uh, they're, they're praying for the other ones as well. But it, it's learning, just as Christ taught his disciples how to pray, Paul teaches, uh, t- Paul teaches his uh, audience to, to pray also for him and for, for others that the, for various needs and that the gospel might be going, might go out. Um, I think, think kind of as Paul's going through this too, that it's not just talking about private prayer. I think, uh, at least as I guess I should say, it's my experience that sometimes we forget the, we forget the important, uh, the people forget the importance of, of not just private prayer, but the corporate prayer of the church, uh, where we are praying together. And that's, you know, that's what we do in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Our Father who art in heaven, that, that we're praying as, as a, a people who are together there. And so as his request isn't a, a formality, uh, you know, like, well, well, where you get on social media and people say, please pray for me. You know, yeah, right. I, okay, I will. Or you put up your praying hands or, or something <laughs> like that. But, but uh, it's a, you know, it's a, an important part of what Paul is trying to teach them, how uh, important prayer is for them, because it's important to him. Well, and we've seen this from Paul, of course, elsewhere. First Timothy 2 is that famous where he says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And he goes on. But, but here he says the same thing. He says supplications, right? Right, pray with all. Uh, praying all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. For those at home, supplication is just a fancy word that means request, right? Making requests. And mm-hmm. he says, to that end, keep alert with perseverance, making your requests for all the saints, and of course also for me. So that boldness of Paul, he mentions uh, twice, you know, he wants prayer so that he can be bold. And then he says, even though he's in chains, he's going to declare it boldly, which that is bold because he's arrested for doing that very thing. But he, he, but he ends it also with this idea of the mystery of the gospel. We heard that way back in chapter 3 about how the mystery was made known to him by revelation, the mystery being that Gentiles are included in the covenant too. Um, it could also be maybe just generic, not generic, but generally the, uh, the good news about Christ because that's also been revealed. But I think in this context, Paul's talking specifically about the Gentiles. I, I don't know how you take it. Yeah, and I think kind of reconnecting it to, to the prayer uh, also that if you look at Paul's request for prayers, he's not praying, please let me get out of, uh, out of this prison or, or things like that. Uh, his prayer is for the gospel to, to go forward. Uh, it's not for his personal welfare or, or for his own health or prosperity. He prays for, he prays for the success of the gospel. Uh, and then that God would, you know, 
that God would then thwart the evil plans of his enemies that would obstruct the proclamation of the gospel that is always for the sake of the gospel is, is what Paul is doing. And that his present trials would be turning an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. That's right. I mean, Paul, like anybody else, doesn't want to be in prison, but you get the sense reading his letters that he sees these oppor- these as opportunities. You know, when, when he's imprisoned, yes, of course he wants to be out, but he uses that as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. I mean, why not? When else is he going to have access to those kinds of people? So I think that's a message for us too. Not that we should be eager for persecution and imprisonment by no means, but when we experience things that might seem on the surface to be very negative, how can we turn that into an opportunity to proclaim or declare it boldly, as Paul says, the gospel? Well, anything else about this text before we finish up with our final greetings from Paul? Um, I I don't, I guess, um, just kind of a reminder that it's a good idea to be thinking of, of this armor of God, especially with the word and the spirit of connected with with baptism too uh, where uh, where Christ cleanses us and washes his bride and and brings us into the fold as a child of the heavenly father it kind of wraps it all together there indeed well why don't we go ahead and read how Paul ends this letter because we're almost at the end of our program starting with verse 21 he concludes so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So, yeah, we have this Tychicus guy. Uh, You know, this is what, an assistant, I suppose, of Paul, a minister who's helping him, but also delivering this letter, it seems. Yeah, in a sense, he's an apostle from from Paul, if you will. Paul sends him uh, to to bring this message to the Ephesians. And I would would think, knowing Paul, that that he would be given the authority then to be, if there was something in the Ephesians, didn't understand of what was written there. That Tychicus is going to uh, is going to be helping to explain explain that as well. Yeah, that's you know, and we don't think of some of the logistics of how these letters got moved around and taken to different places. But but yeah, somebody has to bring it, and and he's sending this minister along. You said an apostle from Paul makes perfect sense. <laughs> I think in modern parlance, maybe it's his vicar, right? He's representing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but in any case, yeah, he's going and he's there to bring a message from Paul. But, of course, we know it's from the Lord. Uh, he ends it in that beautiful grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Uh, not that our love for God is incorruptible, but the love that we receive from God through Christ is perfect and incorruptible. And I just couldn't think of a better way to end this book. Of course, the Holy Spirit saw fit to end it that way. And that's how we'll end the show. Brother, I'm so grateful that you took the time out to spend uh, a little bit of time with us wrapping up Ephesians 6. And I'm thankful for you folks at home for joining us. Uh, My guest this morning has been the Reverend Robert Moeller Jr., pastor of Our Savior, 
in Pipestone, Minnesota, Trinity Lutheran in Jasper, Minnesota, and St. John Lutheran Church in Trotsky, Minnesota. He's a busy guy out there. Thanks, brother, for being on the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. (laughs) Tomorrow we're on to another letter penned by the Apostle Paul by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Philippians, but it's going to be the Reverend John Shank, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. He's a regular contributor to the show. He'll help us open up with this wonderful epistle. Paul is writing from prison, and he's expressing his love and appreciation for the Philippian church, but he urges them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We'll talk about that and a lot more. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.